All right, so Wait, Joffrey, Joffrey, before you begin, are, are you sure you're recording? I just got so many brilliant things to say. I don't want you. I don't want y'all audience to miss out. Shit. You know. Welcome to Issues on Issues, a weekly podcast series brought to you by the team at Brilliance, where we share our take on all aspects related to the graphic novel industry. We discuss and debate current events within the comic community and allegorical themes illustrated in various creative works. In Issues of Interest, we discuss a sorcerer making a deal with the devil to save his family in Dark Ark, Volume 1 by Colin Bunn. We contemplate who's the last Ronin in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Last Ronin by Kevin Eastman. We explore the possibilities of the afterlife in Grim Issue Number 1 by Stephanie Phillips. For our main theme, we deep dive into Why the Last Man, Volume 1 by Brian K. Vaughan, and explore feminism in a male-dominated culture. But first, we chop it up by discussing current events, including Netflix's critiques on the viewership of The Sandman, the new Wakanda Forever trailer, Werewolf by Night, and the delay of the new Blade movie. Please be advised that our conversations may contain spoilers of the works discussed. Stick with us for more right after this quick commercial break. Comic book creators, revolutionize your platform, supercharge your value, engage your fans like never before. Welcome to Brilliance. Current e-publishing models limit your access to readers, impose pricing restrictions, and offer tiny royalties. Brilliance is a new e-publishing platform. At Brilliance, crowdfund concepts, connect with your readers, set your prices, and enjoy royalties that endure. Let's establish this new paradigm together. Learn more at Brilliance.io. That's Brilliance.io. Sign up today to publish for free. All right, guys, let's get into some current news events. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to say thank you to all the people that have um, been listening and, and showing support. Appreciate all the feedback. Don't forget, you guys can email us at comics at brilliance.io or check us out on Instagram at um, issues.on.issues at brilliance.io as well. Um, we'd love to hear more comments as we build this community together. Um, so right now what we're going to do is we're going to slide into some uh, current current news events. Britt, why don't you take the lead and tell us about what you found this week? Uh, well, just that they released the behind-the-scenes trailer for or the second trailer and the behind-the-scenes trailer for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Uh, it's just something I really am following closely because, uh, for one, I'm just a huge fan of that character. Um, and uh, although I had issues with the first movie, I really do feel like there's potential to go beyond what we've seen in the past. Um, obviously, we've seen the trailer there's going to be a female Black Panther. We know that Letitia Wright um, was unvaccinated last year, and that kind of stalled some of the production on Black Panther Wakanda Forever. So I'm just kind of curious to see how the movie turns out in, in, in general. But uh, what are you guys' thoughts about it? Didn't she injure herself as well? Uh, she might have, yeah. yeah. Like unvaccinated, yeah. like she got COVID? No, she just was unvaccinated and kind of part of the protocol was, you gotcha. know, everyone was supposed to be vaccinated, especially because they were shooting in Europe. From what I understand, 
and uh, the regulations were a little different than what they would be over here. And uh, she was she wasn't trying to get the vaccine, so it kind of pushed back uh, production on the movie a little bit. Yeah, I think there's a whole bunch of different speculations going on with regards to who the next Black Panther is. But I, I agree with you, Britt. It looks like it's going to be a woman. I don't think we've had that confirmed. I even heard speculation that there might be multiple women donning the Black Panther suit. But the the images that you've seen for Black Panther with the the kind of like the face paint of uh, um, Shuri kind of looks like that might be the same, you know, um, design. So I, I think that's going to be her. But I don't I don't think we know for sure, dude. Is it has it been confirmed? Uh, I mean, all signs are pointing to it's going to be a female, and I, I think you know from just the trailer we saw the uh, whoever was donning the suit was clearly a woman. So yeah. Uh, now here's the thing: we don't know if it's going to be Shuri because, from what I understand, you know, her role in the movie had to be cut back significantly again because of the whole COVID situation. Mm-hmm. So you know, it could be a Koye. It could, it might be uh, a Lapidi Nyong'o's character. Uh, who does she play? Uh, uh, Nakia, um, you know, so it could be a lot of people. I'd be, I'm curious. I mean, I, in the past, I want to say that, uh, Ramonda, the character played by Angela Bassett, the queen mother has, has had the mantle of black Panther. I want to say maybe, so it could be a lot of people. I'm just curious. Yeah. But I, you know, it kind of makes sense for actually, you know, I'm, I'm, the whole time I've been thinking it's going to be Shuri, but I think it makes more sense for it to be, um, um, Nikia, Nikia. How, how do you say her name? Nikia, uh, the Lapidus character. Yeah, because she she's yeah, a fighter, you know. Uh, well, she was more of a spy from the MCU take mm-hmm. on her. Um, and in the comics, she's a, clearly she's a Dora Milaje, right. uh, which you know. I guess that's what I'm thinking. Uh, yeah, yeah. She and she's she's you know betrothed to the to the king. But the thing about it is though, you know, I don't I don't ever remember a Dora actually taking the mantle of Black Panther. So that'll be interesting how they kind of change the mythology there yeah i mean we haven't even talked about namor right i mean that's that's huge you excited mm-hmm. to see namor yeah no I, i'm excited for my hispanic brothers and sisters you know like they are finally going to get a character to represent them and you know i think it's really cool how they took like i want to say it's either the incan or aztec uh uh mythology and and tied that into namor so that i think that's really cool yeah, yeah, I agree. Chris, do you have any thoughts about uh, the Black Panther? No, nah, I'm, I'm still catching up on all the news for Black Panther, but I did rewatch the movie, and I was just curious, uh, Britt, what, what what issues did you have with the movie? I mean, just just we, real quick. We don't have enough time. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, right. I'm sure we'll touch on that at some point in the future. All right, all right. Um, but uh, speaking of that stuff, uh, Chris, why, why don't you tell us about your topic? Yeah, yeah, no, thanks. So uh, my topic was about uh, Sandman. So um, I found this article talking about how Sandman is, they're still, or I'm sorry, Netflix is still trying to decide whether or not they're going to um, green light another season of Sandman. And the article just interviews Neil Gaiman, who was talking about um, why he thinks um, Sandman's consumption doesn't look like everything else on on Netflix, meaning that you know people aren't binging Sandman, and I I just wanted to bring this up because I I thought it was interesting to just to understand a little bit about Netflix's uh, expectations for what they put on. They expect us to binge, which I thought was interesting. I you know I, I do like to binge, but I didn't know that was like a metric for them. But then also, um, I wanted to hear what your thoughts were if you've seen Sandman, 
Um, and what, why you think maybe people aren't binging? I, I've watched them, and I look back on my Netflix history, and I've seen probably I think there's ten episodes. I think I've seen seven of them so far, but it, it was not a binge at all. It was like me like looking for something to watch, and I, I don't know what you guys thought, but I, I I can't put my finger on it. But it's it's not necessarily binge worthy in my opinion. What do you think, Britt? Uh, I watched some of it a few months back. I actually was you know bedridden I, I had contracted covid like a lot of us have <laughs> but uh i was sitting there in bed and i was kind of kind of coming in and out of it um it is like a really deep kind of backstory that you kind of have to follow before you get any of the action um so it is kind of like a slow burn there's kind of a a, a slow build up to it um so i think that might be a thing and also i just think the way we're kind of conditioned to view content these days, especially the way uh, Disney Plus is doing it, where they release shows like every week and, you know, Amazon Prime. And I feel like that always contributes to the buzz because it gives people time to watch it and then consume it and then talk about it and then move on to the next one. Rather than if you just throw all the content on there once, like people watch it at different times. So it's kind of hard to have a conversation to, you know, depending on where you are in the series, depending on where I'm at in the series. So uh, I think it's, it's just kind of the way we consume things has changed and and the way the slow burn of the show in general is. Yeah, I think that uh, Netflix business model has been proven flawed. Um, with And that's why they started going to kind of half seasons with certain content, you know, like, uh, was like Stranger Things and some of the other big names that they have they've realized that the user base would binge it and then drift off and then wouldn't have anything to talk about the following week. And the Disney plus model and prime model are shown to be more efficient to maintain um, the active users on a more routine base. Um, I did watch the first episode and I I probably will go through the entire um, series or season, but it definitely is more of a slow burn. I, I don't, have the sense of urgency to watch the second episode like I might have with uh, Game of Thrones or or that franchise. And so there is something to be said about that. Yeah. I also think the episodes are a little different than something like Game of Thrones where some of the episodes will only be like, uh, I would say, tangentially connected to each other. Um, Sometimes they feel standalone as if they're their own shows. Uh, and that may that may also impact kind of the binge, right? Like it makes you f- feel like you're shifting gears between episodes and um, that might not be what people are looking for. What I will say, which kind of hmm, in a long run transitions to, to my uh, news article, but what I will say is that DC has an opportunity, you know, I'm probably going to be saying this over and over and over again, but I think DC is darker, more gritty than Marvel and their intellectual property isn't as well known (laughs) for being DC. Sandman's DC. I don't think anybody knows that really, you know, they, they see the Warner brothers. I think that shows up, but he's a DC character. In fact, um, Sandman, uh, some of the characters are involved with some other um, Kingdom Come series, which maybe we'll get into at some point. Um, <clears throat> but I think between Sandman, Swamp Thing, Constantine, 
I think those are uh, characters that are DC characters that have the potential of going really dark, mystical, horror even. Um, and I'd love to see that DC reclaim these um, properties and, and really perhaps bring them into the DC um, EU or do something with them uh, to build out their universe more fully. That's my opinion. For sure, for sure. Well, you know, I, I kind of said that's kind of a, like a transition for me because I was going to talk about uh, Werewolf by Night. It's a new series that dropped on Disney Plus by Marvel. And um, there's been a lot of hype around it, um, a lot of enthusiasm about taking the Marvel Cinematic Universe and, and taking a different spin on it, um, completely fresh approach. And it's been getting really good critical reviews. And I'm interested to hear uh, what you guys thought of the show. So I stayed up uh, late, I want to say two nights ago, and watched it. And, you know, I thought it was really fun. Um, now, how it relates to the Marvel Universe as a whole, I'm not sure I understand that. But, you know, as like a kind of Halloween special kind of, you know, fun thing that they did for the holiday, I, I thought it was really cool, really well done. Um, you know, it, it could have, I don't know if it could have been on the big screen, but, you know, I, I want to say that they tried to infuse it with that level of care and quality. So it was good. I enjoyed it. Oh, and shout out to the dude, Daniel Watts. He's, 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 he's a, he's a friend of the show, friend of my family. And, uh, you know, he's actually a really talented guy, really talented poet, talented, uh, uh, tap dancer as well, you know? So, uh, yeah, he's doing his thing. Yeah. He saw his action scenes. He looked, he looked good. Yeah, man. You know, and it's one of those things where, you know, like it's always awesome when I see friends of mine pop up in the MCU, you know? So, uh, (laughs) Daniel Watts. Yes, sir. Yes, that's dope. That's dope. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I thought I thought it was good. I mean, it, it was definitely something darker than what I've seen on Disney Plus before. But you know, maybe Disney Plus is trying to change up their offerings. I, I, um, I didn't know anything about like the storyline or the characters going into it. So to me, it was like a fresh experience. But um, that was a lot of fun. I think they did. A, I, I like the cinematography. I mean, most of mm-hmm. it being kind of. In monochrome, um, you know, only a dab of color here and there, but I really enjoyed that. It kind of created a lot more atmosphere, and I, I would like to see you know some more of that. I, they did it in Wandavision a couple times too, mm-hmm. and I thought it was kind of cool. Um, so um, I, li- I like to see you know them play around a little bit with with the colors and the lighting and the camera work. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was different. I thought it was you know they used the word campy. Um, it, it was, it was different and, you know, I appreciate the different approach. I, I wasn't overwhelmed by it, but I thought it was, you know, cool, different. I will say that I thought it was very clever of Disney, the way they brought in gore, you know, because I can't really recall last, when have we really seen a lot of blood and gore in any, uh, Marvel, um, picture, but they, because they did it in a monochromatic, um, setting, you couldn't really appreciate the the blood but it, there was there it was there so i think that was pretty clever to to bring that in and it'll be interesting to see how they're going to really go fully r with um deadpool and and eventually 
I think Blade was listed at PG thirteen, but there's definitely a campaign to to get Blade to be R. Yeah. But it if Blade gets made. Yeah, yeah. That this is a little <laughs> little bonus conversation here. So uh recently in the news <laughs> recently in the news Blade has been put on hold or or pushed back, right? To twenty twenty four. It's been it's been, it's actually been put on hold. I don't I, I don't oh. know if they have a date. They did push back uh Secret Wars six months and they pushed back uh, a couple other projects. I can't think of off the top of my head. But yeah, as of right now, you know, they 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 pushed back Deadpool three two months because they they lost their director as well. Yeah, well, you, I'm I'm curious to understand exactly what's going on with Blade, and I know they lost the director, and um, Marshall Ali is questioned if he wants to stay on. I, I think maybe that's just a rumor if he wants to continue on. I know he's I, I understand he's frustrated from the what I'm reading in the, in the news from the rumors, but um, I guess they just got to get that back on track. Yeah. From what I understand, and this is how it's working. Like um, Kevin Feige just is a little bit overstretched at this point. You know what I mean? He has so many irons in the fire, so he's not able to be there on top of everything. And I think the director that they had brought in for the original blade movie, he had like a, uh, an idea that wasn't necessarily uh being, uh, you know, kind of championed by everyone else. So uh, what happened was, you know, and the, and the, obviously when, you know, Kevin Feige isn't overseeing everything, the, it, a lot of that project falls on the director. And the director's vision wasn't really getting there. So I think Marishala was kind of upset with the project. And then, you know, I think Kevin Feige, when he kind of looked at it, wasn't necessarily happy. So the, the, the original director of Blade stepped aside, I want to say a couple of weeks ago. So I think because of that, it's just kind of like a project that's in limbo. And I think Marishala doesn't necessarily like working under that condition. You know, he's he's pretty much an established actor at this point. Yeah. yeah so, you know, I don't I, I'm not sure that he is enjoying the process. And he's also an actor's actor like he like process is very important to him. You know, like how you go about making your your product is just as good as the end result, I think, in his case. So he's just kind of in that place right now. All right. Yeah, so those are our issues. We even got a little bonus one in there. But I think we're going to uh, leave it there for now. There's never been anything like this. Hello and welcome to the Highly Minded Podcast. We always say that low minds talk about people, average minds talk about events, and high minds talk about ideas. We talk about it all. Yeah. (laughs) Available now on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all of your other favorite podcast platforms. First topic conversation is the book why the last man um it was produced by what was vertigo now known as dc black label um written by brian k vaughn and the theme we're going to be discussing today is feminism in a male-dominated culture um Britt, why don't you take the lead and, and tell us a little bit about uh this first 
book that we're going to be discussing. Um, that's issues one through five. Yeah, no. If there were ever a book that kind of is the quintessential book for a show called Issues on Issues, it's this one. Because from the very beginning, we're already talking about a pandemic, a worldwide disease that afflicts half the population. We're talking about Roe versus Wade, mm-hmm. because uh, our main protagonist's mom is, is actually a congressperson, and she's, she's very much in the middle of that fight. Maybe not the way you would think. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in addition to that, we're talking about overseas wars. We get flashes to Israeli soldiers. We get flashes of U.S. spies overseas committing operations, doing operations. So it's just it just really fits the motif of, of what we're trying to do here. I, I think that, well, first of all, Brian K. Vaughn is my favorite comic book writer. Uh, he does an amazing job of adding subtlety and nuance to things. And he does it in a way that's light, it's humorous, but it's also very deep and very topical. If I'm just giving a, a quick kind of overview of, of what the book is, it's pretty much everything that I just described. Chris, what was your first take on the book? So this was written by a man, correct? Yeah. Yes. Because it shows. It, it, it feels like a man's perspective of a woman's perspective on things in some aspects. Okay. When he gets into the characters and writes the characters, it definitely has a feel as of a man has written this. However, my first impression when I saw this was this feels like Animal Farm. I don't know if you guys are familiar with George Orwell's book, Animal Farm, where it talks about the farmer gives these animals on a, on a, on a farm like some autonomy. They create their own government. They, over, they overturn the farmer, right, which I think in this scenario would be the man. The men are, you know, there are no men in their culture. So these women are running the kind of like, you know, the society by themselves. And then, you know, in Animal Farm, it shows that things don't go exactly the way the animals thought it was going to go. Like moving the farmer out the way isn't necessarily the issue with society. And I think what you're seeing here is that the same issues are replicated regardless of whether or not there are men around. They still have violence. They still have political power struggles. They still have arguments about representation and equal rights. They still have racism. So these things are highlighted as gender agnostic issues with society that really get highlighted, I think, when you take the men out of the equation. But when I look at the characters and see how they talk and they interact, I think Sometimes it feels like it's a male's perspective of a female character. That's interesting. One of the things I thought about in even putting this together was the fact that here we are, three guys talking about a book written by a guy, but involving feminism in the male-dominated culture. So obviously in those two aspects, even though we, well, I speak for myself, I really enjoyed the book. This is one of the first books that Brick gave to me in my renaissance of comics for me, but I really enjoyed it. But I knew in just even diving in to discuss this topic, there's going to be an element that we can't fully represent in just our life experiences. So we can just do the best we can and then speak the truth of, of how we see it. But that's an interesting insight though, Chris. Yeah. I mean, I think if like we were sitting down and we were watching something about maybe like our community being told and written by someone outside of it and then discussed by people outside of it, we would have a similar experience and maybe this, how this may play out from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, <laughs> I don't know if you guys, this is completely off topic, but James Patterson, he writes these books. One book is Alex Cross, his books. And it's basically like a black detective uh, that lives in DC. So he writes from the perspective of a black man, him being a white man. While he's not spot on, I'm like, oh, he, you know, he does a decent job. That's, that was kind of my assessment of, of how he, you know, created the character and, and the thoughts and behaviors of the family. And similarly, he, he does a, a story of of a female detective, I believe she is. And 
I'm not a woman, but I thought he does a decent job coming from the perspective of him doing the black man. I'm okay. You know, I could hear the voice of the woman through his work, but yeah, probably you're just not going to be completely spot on, but you know, interesting. Yeah. So are we going to get a quick synopsis of what the book is about? Were you you looking to do that? Yeah, man. Yeah. Go for it. Okay. So basically in why the last man, a pandemic takes the earth where it kills all the men and all mammals with Y chromosomes from whales to like, to monkeys, to everything, everything with a Y chromosome is dead, except for one man by the name of Yorick. And Yorick is somewhat of a dreamer, not really focused too much on where he's going in life and what he's doing. And he decides to adopt a monkey because that was his way of showing responsibility. And he reveals that he bought a monkey to his girlfriend who's overseas, actually, in Australia, in the outback, like on, uh, what would you call that? Like safari? Or what would you say that was? I don't know. Something like that, It's like like safari, yeah. She's out there just taking in nature. Yeah. You know, and she's out there seeing the world. A walkabout. I think that's what they call it, a walkabout. There you go. That sounds right. So she she's in Australia on the walkabout while he's wait time time out. You, you don't remember like in, in in Crocodile Dundee he talks about having to go on a walkabout. Is this something that people really say? I think that's what I they call it. I have not heard like, this term. A, 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 you guys flow with that like this is something you say every day. Right? Okay, <laughs> you don't know? No, oh, it's, it's a walkabout. Yeah. Okay. All right. No, no that, I I I think I think Cuz got it. But but anyway. He's basically locked in his apartment, not knowing what's going on in the world. And finally, when he finally walks out, he, he, he discovers that all men are dead except for him. So he's trying to keep his identity disguised while making his way to his mother, who's in Washington, D.C., because she's a congresswoman. And perhaps she can maybe shed some light on what's going on and perhaps help him. And along the way... Uh, the women of the world are kind of going a little bit crazy. Like they're trying to figure out the new world order, how, how things work. Uh, and there's a lot of factions. There's, there's a pseudo government that's trying to form around York's mother in Washington, DC. There's a radical group of women who are burning their breasts. Once one breast to show, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Solidarity. solidarity within each other. Yes and showing that they no longer conform to gender norms anymore because there are no gender norms. It's just women. And then there's just regular people just trying to figure out. And he just encounters a lot of different people in a lot of different places in their journey as the world tries to figure out what's to do with no more men. Yeah. Real quick, back to a walkabout. According to Wikipedia, a walkabout is a rite of passage in Australian Aboriginal society during which males undergo a journey during adolescence, typically ages 10 to 16, and live in the wilderness for a period of as long as six months to to make the spiritual and traditional transition into manhood, just to let you know. That's interesting. Um, I don't know if she was on the traditional walkabout, but it's funny to put a woman in that position, especially to start the book off as as a rite of passage. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Can we just talk about Yurik for a second? This man wakes up, finds himself to be the only man left and he gets a couple of instructions. One is protect your identity. He does a poor job of kind of adhering to that. <laughs> poor. Um, you know, and you think about it, he's also one track mind. He's like, I'm, I left my house. I'm just going to go meet my girlfriend on the other side of the planet. And he's going to pass by this, this very different world than how he was last in it, which is he's the last man. The politics and the environment has changed significantly. But he seems relatively unfazed. 
And it's really just focused on one thing, which is going to confirm with his rubber ring, whether or not he actually has an actual engagement with his girlfriend. Because he, he had proposed to her. And then before he could really hear if she accepted, they get interrupted by the chaos that results in the removal of the Y chromosome from the global population. And everybody dies. So what's your thought about that? I don't know if they decided to make him a, a very different type of male character in order to create a, a more juxtaposition between him and mm-hmm. like some of the female characters within the book. And so they've kind of simplified him a little bit. I think he's become not that realistic, which a lot of things in the book are very realistic. If you were to think them through as how these events would unfold in real life, it seems like the things would probably settle the way that the book indicates. But the main character, I mean, to be the last male on the planet and to kind of like, okay, I'm going to pass everybody to go to the other side of the planet to meet this girl that I've, you know, I haven't been making an effort to go see beforehand. I've been sitting in my house calling her. Like that, it just feels, it just feels kind of a, a little bit um, tone deaf. I mean, from his perspective, not from the writer's perspective. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he probably is, I don't know if the word is a vessel or he's just kind of like the white paper that all the words are written on to create that juxtaposition. Because I did notice like just looking at between the difference between him and his his sister, right? You think about to the point, you're saying he's the last man. And you'll see more of this as the books plays out, but he's being very cautious about interacting with other women, having sex with other women and things like that. And he's waiting for Beth. He's just trying to get to Beth. Meanwhile, you have his sister who's liberated and her opening scene, they talk about her being with the whole fire department being set in the biblical free. sense. Huh? Yeah, Sorry, she's yeah. been she's been with the, the with with the whole fire department in a. Uh, and, 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 <laughs> I mean, just that. I'm sorry. Just real quick. That that scene itself, like the idea that they're like, oh, like she's she's sleeping with all these guys. Like, first of all, the scene doesn't tell you that she's sleeping with all these guys, right? She just got it with this one guy, and that's it. But then, like, the, well, no, the, the girls, the dialogue, the, 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 the girls, dialogue, yeah, the, that. The, yeah, the dialogue in the scene indicates that she has a habit of doing this, right? And then they mm-hmm. later down in the book they reinforce that she's had some kind of history with men. And that maybe now she's found a good one. No one really knows, right? But the issue is like, and that's why I thought, that, hey, maybe this was written by a man. Like this idea that like, that didn't need to be introduced. Maybe mm-hmm. it comes plays in later. I don't know. But as far as I've gotten so far in the book, it didn't seem like that was really building her character in any type of way. I don't really have a good sense of who her character is, actually, except they introduced her as promiscuous in the beginning. And then she's radicalized at the end of the book. And I'm sure we'll learn the journey, but the same criticism with Laura Croft, right? They had changed part of her backstory to make her a victim of sexual assault. And people mm-hmm. were upset. They were like, why does Laura Croft have to be a recovering victim from some type of crime or some type of like, you know, some type of thing that happened to her from, a, you know, imposed on her by men in order for her to be a viable, realistic, relatable hero? Why does that have to be a tragedy? And I think that that's a tendency that you see sometimes that maybe male writers put into female characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it sounds. Go ahead, Britt. Yeah, no, I, I that sounds logical. I think what maybe and going back to your point about this being written by a man, I think it's definitely a man's perspective on what the world looks like when it's run by women, but we're looking at it from the perspective of a man, which is Yorick. So he's in taking this world and processing it through his male brain, and that's kind of how we're seeing it through his eyes throughout the book. But I definitely feel like, for one, he definitely does not do a great job concealing his identity. You know, he, he's, he's, he's very idealistic in the thinking that people are out to help him, not realizing that, for one, he's just a valuable commodity. So he needs to kind of protect his own self-being. But he's also very selfless in that he, if he, if he needs to 
reveal his identity to help someone else that he feels like is in need, he'll do that. Mm. Um, would, you, would you say that he comes across as uh, privileged, you know, in the, in the idea that he's willing to just kind of be out there and doing these certain things, whereas somebody else might have a different perspective on, on how to interact in the world? I don't know about privilege, but I do feel like he is willing to impose his views and his beliefs on other people, despite maybe what he should do or what the situation dictates. And I feel like that's the crux of kind of the drama or the or whatever the interest of the story is. It's him kind of doing things that probably aren't in his best interest <laughs> for himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other things I thought was interesting was um, there's that page in the book where it talks about unmanned world stat breakdown. And uh, it just goes through basically what happened when this virus hits and the repercussions of it and just just the stats of how many uh, government officials were men and how many certain positions were male dominated versus like agriculture. There were a decent amount of uh, women doing agriculture. And it talks about the different countries that have military forces where women are involved, the nuclear submarines and things like that. And it was just an interesting opportunity, a window into just to show how lopsided our society is with certain roles that genders play. Yeah, I mean, they highlight that with the girl trying to drive the garbage truck, right? She runs it into a tree because she doesn't know how to operate a commercial vehicle like that. You see little highlights of that all over the book, this idea that because there's not equality in the distribution of these roles throughout society, that when you eliminate all the men, like people aren't really trained in these roles. Yeah, I think it's actually it's interesting and just hearing or just seeing some of the perspectives of some of these uh, female leaders. Like Alter's perspective, she says something to the fact that men have taught women to be content behind the typewriter. But she comes from a family of female fighters, so her perspective was completely different as far as what the female role can and should be. And I thought that's refreshing, but also probably true that obviously there's no single type of template on how a woman should be. But at least in the Israeli army, it gives you a chance to play those certain roles. I think, in fact, you know, I always talk about the Israeli army and how everybody, men and women, have to serve uh, for a little bit. I think that I think that's interesting just just for society, because not only in this case, it's, it's definitely beneficial for women to have the experience, but their entire population has had the experience of being in the military in one form or fashion. So they're all somewhat knowledgeable, whereas this came to the U.S., where the majority of uh, people in the U.S. are not military, you can easily see us having a, even though we're a superpower, you can easily see us having some significant problems if we were hit by something that took out uh, our military class. But you could also see another example of like the female leaders was like the Amazon leader, and she considered men a genetic error. She's an articulate woman, and she the way she describes it, I thought that was also interesting, just trying to say that men were a mistake. And I thought that was interesting. I think both of you guys are farther along than I am in the book, right? I mean, as far as the overall set, right? Because I think I'm only at book one. And maybe this becomes clearer later, but is there another piece of legislation about cloning? Is it related to Road versus Wade or is it something different? I don't know how deep the book goes into discussing cloning. Um, as far as legislation, I think it does talk about it a little bit, just kind of like what's going on in our current society, how things are viewed with regards to cloning. And it's a practice that we don't 
technically you're not supposed to clone humans, but other countries, they, they had Dolly. And I think the Chinese did some cloning. And it, it, it kind of talks to that issue as far as different countries that might not have the same, what's the word, ethics that maybe Western or certain other countries might have are, are doing other, you are using science and technology to advance in this space. It definitely gets revisited later on, though, as as you learn more about Dr. Mann. I'm, I just I just got to ask, um, is, she, is she some type of who can who fertilize herself? No. No, because didn't she say that the, the, the fetus was the uncle's? No, I'm sorry. Um, what did she say? It's like the nephew, the nephew had the nephew. some bone disease or some some type That's of what it was. OK, and they needed some. They need something. So there's some other mechanism that she uses to to impregnate herself. I just thought she that- describes it, and I forgot the details of it. But it basically, she you know she takes the embryo and puts in the DNA from the the nephew or something, and creates a embryo. But um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you guys want to. Um, well, they're not really moving on. It's just kind of a little bit more to like that that initial interaction with Yorick's mom with the senator. I don't know if this plays into Chris's perspective of how a man might view the interaction of a male and female, but you do hear it in that interaction that, that Yorick's mom, who is a house representative experiences with the senator. And she's able to do some trash talking in the corporate politically correct speak. She's able to, to dish it and they're going kind of back and forth throwing barbs politely. But you can see the senator's tone, you know, is condescending. And he calls her congresswoman. And she says, I prefer to be called representative. And then he makes that comment about not getting the new gender neutral handbook and continues to call her congresswoman, despite what she said. So I thought that was interesting to, to show an example of the subtle passive aggressive interactions that women have to go through in trying to navigate the world. And she could fight too. <laughs> she, she threw York. <laughs> I pretty much touched on everything that I wanted to talk about. Only thing we didn't talk about is like the fact that they made a TV show of it. Um, we never really talked about that. But I- Man, it got canceled after the first episode. That makes me sad because it get canceled. Because it was terrible, but it, the thing is, <laughs> it was. Like, it was how terrible. did they mess it up? Like, like it, the script is right there. Just follow the story, man. It's a great story. Mm, I don't know. It's funny because as much as I love Brian K. Vaughn, his writing, he's had a couple of things get adapted. Like The Runaways was his, and that wasn't that great. And there was one other book that he wrote that got adapted that I was like, I, I don't know. So what do you think? You think he should just, if he's going to do TV, just do TV. If he's going to do books, just do books. Because he did Lost, right? Uh, I don't. I don't think he did. Was, is, I think that was that's a J.J. Abrams thing. No, but he was one of the writers. He did it. Some was uh, it? I don't know. I I just know that his stories don't necessarily translate to the big screen. Uh, so are you basically saying like, hey, this is a great story. It's a shame it didn't make it into the big screen. Or are you saying like, hey, that that one adaptation should have had a longer run? You know what? I wonder what the creative process is when his shows get picked up because somewhere along the way it always gets lost in translation mm. and mm. i don't know how big of a part it he is if he's like a producer if he's just maybe just a supervising kind of like a script editor or something like that but it always gets lost in translation and, and he writes big books this he wrote saga so i think he's a great writer i don't think he's a great template for television or movies 
Yeah, they're putting him up there with like the Hall of Fame, man, like Alan Moore and Frank Miller. Yo, he's or the guy, man. I actually, I actually got my yeah. my 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 uh, volume one of Why the Last Man. He signed it for me. Uh, I, I met him at a oh, at a comic book signing at a local comic book store here in uh, California, a little store called Earth Two in Sherman Oaks. Shout out. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a good store. It's a great store, and I met him there on Free Comic Book Day. I'm somewhat of an aspiring comic writer, and he gave me some great advice. He said, first of all, just keep writing, and secondly, don't be afraid of letting your imagination run wild. When you read Saga, when you read Why the Last Man, you can tell that this guy has a crazy imagination. Yeah, sa- Saga, definitely. You're just like, oh, man, this is out there. I'm loving it. <laughs> we'll get to that at some point, but, man, Saga's, saga's out there. Yeah, so he's, he's definitely my favorite comic book writer, for sure. I just wanted to say one thing real fast. Uh, so there's a character introduced by the name of 355. Yeah, we didn't even talk about her, really. Yeah, and, and she, you know, she's she's a black woman. She's like a, a spy for the U.S. She's kind of like Jason Bourne, <laughs> but as a black woman. And she's out there going on operations as an agent of the United States. And one of the cool things is there was, I want to say, originally a, a group of women who were actually spies for the U.S. government. And... Their their group name was the 355 for whatever reason. I think that was a really cool kind of homage to the women who were part of the groundwork of our security infrastructure here in the United States by naming her 355. They gave those people a, a shout out. So I thought that was really cool. Do you know why the original group of women were called 355? I have no idea. I'm reading it right now on, on Wiki. Asian... 355, codename of a female spy during the American Revolution, part of the Culper Ring. Uh, Agent 355 was one of the first spies for the United States, but her real identity is unknown. The number 355 could be decrypted from a system of Culper Rings used to mean lady. There you go. So yeah, I guess so. one of the original spies for during the American Revolution was a woman with the code name 355. So I thought that was really cool that they gave a comfortable homage to that with Agent 355 in this book. Are you a comic book creator looking for a new or additional engagement platform for your community? Then come take a look at Brilliance. Brilliance is a blockchain-powered platform where authors can publish ebooks, crowdfund new creative ideas, and connect with their readers. With Brilliance, authors can set royalties that endure beyond the initial sale to include royalties on resale of the book. That's right. Unlike many other ebook providers, Brilliance allows users to resell their books on the marketplace, and with each sale, the original creator will receive their royalty payment directly to their account. Authors are free to price their works however they would like. Unlike other platforms, Brilliance does not pressure creators into pricing restrictions. By unlocking pricing, Brilliance allows for natural price discovery and a true relationship between the creator and their devoted readership. Additionally, by leveraging Brilliance's blockchain technology, authors can access all the readers who have owned their work or even works of a similar genre. This gives the authors an opportunity to build their own distribution lists, connect directly with their fan bases, and grow their unique community. 
there are many more benefits to this game-changing platform. Learn more and sign up by going to brilliance.io. That's brilliance.io. Let's establish a new paradigm. All right, let's, uh, let's keep it moving. Let's talk about our issues of interest. How about Chris? Why don't you, why don't you tell us about your book? All right. So my book was uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin. So this is kind of like a telling of the comic book characters that at least I grew up with. And I was a big Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle fan. It's a telling of like, kind of a dystopian future where um, only one turtle remains. And so I'm not going to ruin it and I'm not going to say which turtle it is, but it's a basic vengeance story, but it's interesting. It's, it's a little bit more gritty. You can see what happens to some popular characters like Casey and um, April O'Neil. Yeah, but yeah, April <laughs> O'Neil and, and Casey, we, we, you see kind of what happened to those characters and there's some new characters as well. For the first book I read, it's just a very straightforward, gritty action comic book where if you like a little bit of ninjas versus cyborgs type of action then it's a good quick pickup what age target is it is it for kids or is it no um, more young adult to mature audiences yeah i think it's more young adult to mature audiences right it's not cartoonish it's more about just revenge themes and you know some domination themes but it's it's not cartoony at all so a couple things one do you know who wrote it yeah let me check because i don't do my homework on these things so i could tell you okay go ahead uh, Kevin Eastman. Yeah, Kevin Eastman. There you go. I'm not familiar with him. And just by your description of it, I probably have an idea of which turtle is still around. <laughs> go ahead. Make, make a guess. I'm curious to hear. I mean, like, let's pull it this. You got to get Donatello and Michelangelo out of there. They're, it's not either of them. It has to be either Raffi or Leonardo. Wait, 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 wait. So why do you say that? Why do you think, why do you think that it's Raffi or Leonardo? Well, when I think of Ronin, I always think of Leonardo, right? He's like the consummate like right. samurai, like you know. Right. That's why he has the sword. that's why he has the katana blades. Yeah, exactly. So you know, okay. when I think of that, it's it's it, it you know it seems like it would be Leo. Plus, I mean, you know, he's clearly the best fighter, so he probably mm-hmm. would last the longest. Or so, or yeah. when you when you say gritty, or you talk about revenge, or like any of those type of things, then you're automatically talking about Raphael. Because no okay. one does vengeance, no one does grittiness better than him in terms of the Ninja Turtles. So if I just had to guess, I would say it's probably one of those two. But okay. then you can make the argument. I, I think you make some good sense right there, Britt. But then you can make an argument how how interesting would those stories be if any of the other two, whether it be Donatello or Michelangelo, like take Michelangelo, for example, how interesting would that story be? What happens to Michelangelo after all his brothers die? Who does he become? We know him as the, the jokester and the clown but now he's dealing with the death of all his brothers what happens to him does he get serious hardcore it'd be interesting and don't forget i mean it's not perfect right it's teenage mutant turtles but they're ninjas (laughs) right they're not samurai ronin is a masterless samurai Mm -hmm. right and when you look at the i don't know if you guys have ever like looked into samurai but it's actually kind of interesting they're a political class that was formed and if you watch some anime it, it touches on this a little bit but it's a political class that was formed after there was a need for them. So there was a point in time where in feudal Japan that you know farmers and other people would come up and fight whenever there was a need for a fight or a skirmish that they would take up arms and fight. And then some people became more masterful than others. But then at one point in time, they just did a complete 
segregation of society and said, look, like, you know, you could either be on the agrarian side or you can be on this, in this samurai, you know, side. And people didn't actually know where those castes were going to fall from a hierarchy perspective. So people just opted, you know, for whatever reasons, I'm way over generalizing, but the point is it wasn't until after those two groups were created that the samurai became kind of like this elite class within society, but they didn't have anything to do because at this time, Japan had been unified and there, there wasn't any need for these warriors. They're kind of like warriors without a cause. But anyway, I, w- I would say that you guys are interesting. I, I, do, I do think that if you read that the second episode, you, you find that which, which turtle is, is remaining. I'm surprised you guys didn't think Donatello. I mean, he was the guy who had the most thoughts. The, the, he was the inventor. You would think that he might have been the most strategic about you know, surviving an onslaught. Yeah, I wasn't ruling him out, you know, but I, I was, was just talking about perspective. <laughs> you ruled him out early. Like, so I was, I, I just, I, I feel like Donnie always goes out early. Well, yeah. what is the reason that they, that they die? What, what happens? Yeah, I mean, it's not hundred percent. You don't know the story around each turtle that dies, but you do find in the second book that the at least one turtle's death you see. And you understand how it goes down, and it's consistent with that turtle, right? And and, and their 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 characterization, I mean, their, their character. But it, it's basically just them fighting foot soldiers. I mean, at least that's what it appears to be um, at the outset. Like, hey, they've had this ongoing war with this other clan, the you know the Shredder clan, and any descendants of Shredder, and those the foot soldiers. It's just been ongoing, and so uh, but the turtles, you know, there's few of them, and they start to succumb. Really, dude. Okay, let me ask you this because I know at some point, kind of in the comics, Leonardo has a, a like kind of a relationship with Shredder's daughter. Does any of that come into that at all? Or? You know, it's a great question. Like, what is the canon, and whether or not this is that this is in there? I, I I don't know. That doesn't come up at, at this far into the read. I'm like, I'm like, hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> Fishing for hints over here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh uh, no, that's awesome. But you do you do find out that at least you know you know that Splinter is dead, right? Because the Ronin. So that's what that's pointing to. Like there's no Splinter. Yeah. So right. that, and that's the beginning, right? Of of their downfall. Oh mm. uh, man! All right, Britt, what you got for us? Uh, so yeah, my issue of interest is Dark Art. It's distributed by Aftershock and it's written by Colin Bunn and illustrated by Juan Doe. And Basically, it follows the journey of Noah's Ark, but it actually supposes that there was a second Ark, whereas Noah took all the animals of the world, of the natural world, like elephants and giraffes, and all, as the story goes, two of each animal. But in Dark Ark, it supposes what happened to all the other creatures from the unnatural world, when you think about all the mystical things that might have been in the past, like unicorns, uh, chimera, uh, all sorts of different creatures. And it puts them on this separate arc, the leader of the boat being a magician named Shrey. And Shrey is kind of an unwitting protagonist. Like, he didn't choose to be in this situation. In fact, we find out in later issues, and I don't want to give too much away, that he basically sold his soul to the devil in order to achieve a new magical feat that he needed to help his family. 
And by doing that, he indebted himself to the devil. And the devil asked that he protected all the unnatural creatures. So again, vampires, chimera, any kind of half-human, half-animal hybrids. And his task is to make sure these creatures make it to the new world after the flood that God has brought down upon the world. It's very much the issue at hand is the ends justify the means. Mm -hmm. And he's justifying it by saying he's trying to get his family to safety. And he was granted the ability to do so by the devil who made a pact with him that if he ferried these unnatural creatures into the new world, that he would be out of his debt. So the whole time you're following his journey and he is going through it emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And what he finds out along the way is he sends one of the creatures out to find any survivors or any signs of life or any signs of land. And when this creature comes back and reports to him that there is a second arc and it's full of animals and full of people and, and things that these unnatural creatures would love to feast on, he has to keep all these creatures in line on the boat. And it's really interesting because along the way, we find out that he's feeding them human prisoners who he's captured to be on this trip <laughs> so that he could keep these unnatural creatures kind of at bay. Because otherwise, they might either turn on Shrey and his family or they might turn on themselves. And in either case, the devil would not be very pleased. So he has to just keep this very fine balance between all these creatures that are on board. And I know Chris read a little bit of it. Yeah. We were kind of talking about it earlier. Like one of the creatures that actually on the ship are, are two unicorns. And the unicorns are, are creatures of light. Whereas the majority of creatures on the ship are creatures of the dark. And the whole time they're just huddled in the corner saying, we don't belong here. <laughs> this isn't where we're supposed to be. And all the other creatures are like, shut up before we eat you. <laughs> they look delicious, too. Yeah, you know, I mean. Oh, Lord. You know, well, I mean, where, where are the other creatures of the light, you know, like fairies and other, other you know, more friendly, unnatural for, creatures? For whatever reason, I don't think that was part of the deal. The deal that he made with the devil didn't include, <laughs> didn't include fairies or, or anything like uh -huh. that. Um and and what what type of people did he capture? Was it a certain type of people? Was like did he just get the prisoners and and put them in in the on the boat, or was it all just random people? Was it the poor people, or or it was just random people that he captured? Well, okay, I don't I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but okay, yeah, don't don't give away too much. But you know, know, let's put it like this: to build an ark, a large boat that could cold all these creatures it took a lot of manpower like he just couldn't do it alone noah did it <laughs> no one got on his side you know our is working with the devil <laughs> uh, yeah and you can tell the devil doesn't really provide everything that he needs all the time either the question i had and by the way i, I made it to all the way through two of the three four books not three because i'm looking at it now but the question i had is okay so they're feeding the the unnatural creatures these prisoners on on this arc, mm -hmm. on Noah's arc, what are they feeding the meat eaters? Are they also <laughs> feeding the people? No, That's I don't think they're. Why would they feed them people? People aren't because like the main meal of 
animals, right? Wow. Yeah, you know, I mean, honestly, that's just a good question just for theologians and scholars like that. I, think, I mean, I think I, you already <laughs> answered it. Brett, God provided, you know, just, you know, you will not be hungry for 40 days, 40 nights. You know. mm-hmm. I don't know. So, yeah, so, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting to see that this man who just wants to ferry his family to safety and, and, and the moral kind of conundrums that he finds him in just trying to be a protector and provider for his family. It's a really great book. It's super fantasy. Like It stretches what we know about religion and what we know about just philosophy in general and about the natural world and, and kind of makes you question, were there mythical creatures before this that maybe, maybe God wanted to get rid of? And, and that's why the story of the Noah's Ark is what it is. Or, or maybe these things are out there still and we don't know about it. I don't know. It's, it's just a fun book to think about. Can you talk or a what bit? if. Oh, go ahead. No, yeah, no, like no, what I, if. I, I was just going to ask like, how you came across this book. You know, just going through any number of mediums. You know, things that just prick your ear up. And this is one of them. Like, what if there was a second arc? And what would that journey be like? Because we already know, you know, we kind of know from the Bible what it tells us about the Ark. But it just really kind of interests me. So I definitely picked up the book just based off that. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's super interesting. It makes you question your faith. It makes you question how you believe God interacts with us on Earth and what supernatural forces are at play in and around this world and how one would deal with being in a situation where they had to deal with the dark side of the mystical world. Cool. Cool. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about what I picked up the other day. The issue I'm, I'm here just to quickly mention is uh, Grim, issue number one. Uh, it's distributed by Boom Studios. The writer is Stephanie Phillips. She's known for doing work on Harley Quinn and Rick and Morty. And the theme kind of touched on in this first issue, this is a brand new comic series that came out. So I just read issue one, issue two just came out recently. The theme I'd say is dealing with loss. And uh, it starts by showing this character named Brian, who's just coming out of a car crash, only to find out that he's actually dead. And he's being greeted by his own personal Grim Reaper um, named Jessica. And um, obviously you find out you're dead, you're gonna be in denial and not accepting that he's dead and it kind of walks you through the process of him going through that and what i thought was interesting in this issue was the juxtaposition of of the two characters the two main characters one being brian and jessica so where you have brian who he's now dead but you can make the argument that his life was already dead before and they talk about you know how he wasn't a good uh boyfriend and he made mistakes and you could see um, that his his girlfriend has moved on and he has, you know, he's dealing with some regrets from that. And then you just ex- just expose that to um, Jessica. She's she's dead, but she's a Grim Reaper. She's normally going about the day to day business as usual, being the Grim Reaper, transporting these souls to processing. And it's not really until something kind of exciting happens with Brian that all of a sudden she's showing signs of actually being alive. So now she's deviating from her normal script, her normal routine, and she's now showing signs that is she alive. So that's just kind of the first issue. 
it's interesting. I thought the artwork was really nice. I'm curious to see where it goes from here. So you're saying that this guy, Brian, his Grim Reaper named Jessica might actually still be alive? So she doesn't know how she died, whereas everybody else kind of knows their story. And uh, I'm not saying that she's alive. I don't know. I, I think it's maybe it's somewhere in, in between. And she has certain characteristics come to light that traditionally a Reaper wouldn't have if she was dead or a complete Reaper, you know? So we don't know yet. So she's like a but, Reaper um, in training? No, she's, she's been doing it for a while. Like it's just routine. She knows the games. In fact, Brian's kind of run around hysterical about the fact that he's dead. And she's just like, oh boy, here we go. another one. You can't go anywhere. You just got to come follow me. Oh, we got to go to processing. And like, it's routine for her. And she has some other Reaper friends in the processing that you meet. And so it doesn't seem like she's new to it. It, it just seems like something changes that sends her on a little mission to do something that normally she would just go to the next soul to transport. But now she has to go on like this little mission. And in doing that, some characteristics of who she is or her being, either they become different or they, it comes to light that she's presented differently. And so it makes you just wonder like what's, what's different about her and why is she different? So maybe, maybe she is alive or, or in transition or something. It's not really clear at all. Yeah, I mean, it's, but again, it's, you know, it's the first issue, so it's it's a lot of to be discovered. Yeah, I mean, it's a cool concept. I think the part that the actual scythe plays a role in, like how they interact with the world, is interesting too, uh, or mm -hmm. at least at least that's that's implied, right? So, you know, I guess you know both you guys picked like these kind of interesting, I would say, metaphysical type of topics, right, for for the issues, and you know, one being the dark arc, like what, what if. And then the other being like, what if you die? You know, what happens then? Um, so you know, both are going to be interesting to see how they develop. Yeah. So it sounds like you, you read it, Chris. Yeah, yeah, I read it. I read everything that you guys, every guys everything you guys said you're going to talk about today, I read. So I wanted to make okay. sure I, in case we had a conversation, right? And, and yeah. And to make sure I had something. So what, what do you think? Do you think I missed anything of, of interest to, to bring up about the issue? No, I think you got it all. I mean, I think that, I think, in fact, I, you know, some things I didn't even pick up on, right? Specifically, like her progression, like that she was kind of stuck in a rut. And then now, like, having this, this one death for this one character kind of changed how everything, and it's crazy, right? Because there's a scene where you see the processing that Joffrey's talking about, right? Where all these souls are kind of just sitting there waiting at this large, in front of this large billboard for their, like, their name and number to be called for whatever the next step is, right? They're all just sitting in this waiting room. And so you, it implies that they, they've been doing this forever and it's always been the same routine. But then for some reason, you know, this particular individual who dies and this particular reaper have a different, different experience. And I think just kind of go from there. All right, everybody, that's our show. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at brilliance.io twitter at brilliance.io or you can visit our website brilliance.io and please like share and subscribe to our show to continue the conversation this podcast was edited by brit special thanks to him for putting this all together that sounds interesting yeah, I mean, if you're a total fan check it out um you know if you want a little bit of like that gritty 90s comic action that's that's what this kind of feels like
But um, just side note, for some reason, the turtle without a mask looks like I just can't stop thinking about 50 Cent. But no. <laughs> <laughs> when you guys see the illustration, I'm sure you won't be able to unsee it either. <laughs> oh, man. Hopefully, 50's not lifting, listening because he's Petty King. He'll. I uh, know. He's going to come back. He's going to be on Google. He's like, yeah. Man. He's busy with Madonna right now, so maybe he'll know. Yeah. You know, oh, wow. Keep him busy. That's, that's funny. No. Oh, you could, you could take, that take, 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 take that out. Take it out. Take it out. Here's a sneak peek of next week's episode. His father's like fighting interdimensional wars. He's getting sucked into time portals. He's got he's got like a whole thing going on. Invincible by Robert Kirkman, distributed by Image Comics. They they do a great job with with all of the Eastern mysticism, even though it's like two white guys from Rhode Island. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Legend of Korra: Ruins of the Empire, written by Michael Dante DiMartino, distributed by Dark Horse Comics. Uh, now I'm like, man, I, gotta, I need to check the closet again. <laughs> <laughs> The Closet by James Tynan IV, distributed by Image Comics. What kind of people would bring a kid into worlds like these? And our main topic, Saga by Brian K. Vaughn, distributed by Image Comics.